if you're raising a million, you need at least half a million committed. Well, I wanted to make sure that we had as much committed as humanly possible. So we said we're raising one million pound, but we had 750,000 pounds of it already committed. So a majority of it. And then we just overfunded massively. That's Dan, the usual host of Secret Leaders. I'm obviously not Dan. I'm Will Stolman, the head of podcasts here at Kindling Media. Every few months, I interview Dan to find out what it's really like being a founder. Because Dan's day job, if you've somehow managed to avoid him on social media, is running his VC-backed startup, Heights. I don't know where he finds the time. If this is the first episode like this you've heard, with me sitting down with Dan, then I'd stop what you're doing. Search for Dan Chapter 1 in the Secret Leaders feed. He's got a great origin story. But if you're up to date, in the previous episode with Dan a few months ago, we learned how to develop a product and bring it to market. That's where we are today. Dan and his co-founder Joel have developed the Heights Brain Care Supplement, but now they need to scale it. They need to scale the business. This is the tricky first year, being public. They need to negotiate their way out of the valley they're in now and get into the larger valley next door. If you want to build a business, then you're going to need to get good at crossing valleys. Because even when things seem like they're going well, a curveball is always just around the corner. It's February 2020. We've just got our first £30,000 at the end of the month of January. Really excited and really proud of what happened. Big plans for February on all the things we're going to do, including going to the USA and doing a fundraising trip. And we want to do that because we thought there's a big market in LA and New York, a really big opportunity for us. So I booked my flights for March and February, a lot of February is basically set up around like trying to get the right introductions to people, trying to make sure we've got the right people in the round. We've now got a business that has just launched and got £30,000 in sales already and is like growing nicely and has an audience and yada, yada, yada immediately like straight into february i'm i fall like really ill and don't know what it is i'm sitting at home like coughing my guts out feeling terrible i was sitting at home working all day getting like a massive headache and having a really bad cough and then like towards the end of the day the coughing fits getting worse and worse and then i'm wheezing a bit i'm in bed early my wife is like what is going on like you sound absolutely terrible cool one 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 they're like yeah you're gonna have to come into hospital i go into hospital it's february 2020 so there are some reports about some tasty bats that have been eaten in china sure i go into uch hospital you know i'm wearing a mask because i think it's the polite thing to do because i have a really terrible cough i'm telling them about covid and they're like nah it's definitely not covid don't worry about it it'll be fine doctor tells me to take my mask off i'm like are you sure i'm coughing pretty bad he's like yeah it's pointless anyway stick me on a ventilator i was on a ventilator for the night feeling pretty bloody terrible and um i spent the night in hospital and then the rest of february i was just out we just launched the business i was so excited there were two of us pretty bad timing got customer service got brand got social like all of these things there's just two of us and i am like flat out cold and it was very similar to the time i had burnout i just couldn't get out of bed like i was just dead my energy was so drained and i was very much determined to like get over this but Obviously, I didn't realise, and I never got diagnosed for having COVID, but, like, it was pretty obviously what all the symptoms of COVID afterwards. And I was just so, so, so completely flat out. So February was a pretty bad month. I'd booked these flights to go to the USA in March and do this fundraising trip. Stuff is starting to become very, very, very known 
about COVID. Like, coming up towards the end of February, the start of March, I'm starting to recover feeling better. A lot of information's coming out about COVID at this point. I, I mean, honestly, it was really bad to have two people in a business and one of you is out. It was so unfortunate. We hadn't got round to hiring yet. Um, it was just, it was just terrible timing. So I said to Joel, right, I'm going to work from LA for a week. I'm going to do these investor meetings. I'd set up some really good ones, like fantastic ones with like some of the top angel investors in LA. And one of them, I was even like, so like the night before I went on the Friday, um, the news was getting bad. And my wife was suddenly being like, please don't go. This is like really bad at this point. It's terrible. Please don't go. And I'm like, look, I paid for these flights. We've got an office. There's a lot of expenses going on. I can't just like be burning money for like no particular reason. I got to go and I got to have these meetings. And she's like, why don't you just see if these people will do them on Zoom or whatever? And I'm like, don't be ridiculous. No one's going to do it on Zoom, but I will ask. I said the night before on the Thursday, I emailed all the people because I, I was having meetings in LA on Friday. I was flying Friday morning and then I was having meetings Friday afternoon in LA. So, you know, it's like whatever it is, eight hours behind. So I was going to be landing and going straight into these meetings, but it was worth it because whatever. Emailed them all on the Thursday. They said, yep, definitely want to have these meetings on Friday. Want to do it in real life. Makes a massive difference. Really excited to meet you. Great. Happy days. Obviously, you can probably see where this is going. Land Friday. The news has turned so bad between Thursday and Friday that they're all like, no, we don't think it makes sense to have a meeting. Can we do a video call? I end up having all my meetings in LA, in LA, on video call with other people in LA. Not one person would actually meet me IRL, and that was the difference. On the Friday, as I'm there, Trump starts talking about like closing the borders, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to fly home immediately, aren't I? And I did. And I flew home immediately. I managed to get out on the Saturday night, having had all the meetings. I mean, obviously, I was supposed to be in LA for a couple of weeks, so all the meetings that were coming up were just going to be done on video call anyway. I came home. My wife, very much like, into your room you go for the next two weeks. I will put a bowl down by your by your door for the next two weeks whilst you're in quarantine. Do not pass go do not collect $200 and do not look at me she doesn't like germs does she at the best of times she does not like germs no indeed and what I had just done was basically uh, germ central as far as she was concerned so my experience of fundraising for heights was an absolute disaster I mean just for clarity I flew to LA on Friday morning and had to fly home Sunday night to then spend two weeks in quarantine in my bedroom after being ill for the whole month before and that was all just so that I could have some video calls on Friday in LA to other people in LA it was the biggest disaster and very frustrating so what did this mean for the company were you worried for the company then at this point yeah so basically we'd had a plan of we need to raise some money we need to raise some money because we need to hire a team we needed some money by june it was march there's usually enough time especially for angel investing but suddenly this thing happens and no one knows how anyone's going to react so first week everyone is just like cancelling all meetings we're not finding anything we don't know what's going on we don't know how to communicate with startups but what we do know is you know every investor was like we need to just back the companies we've already given money to that's the most important thing totally understand within the second or third week the narrative started to change quite fast actually people started to be pretty open-minded i think a lot of people were like oh my god if this is going to be a six to twelve month thing we can't just like not 
do anything for six to 12 months. So I guess let's just like move everything online and just get on with our lives. And that changed within a couple of weeks. The way that Joel and I split our time was I said, I'm going to focus entirely on the fundraising because if we don't fundraise, we don't have a business. And one of the reasons is, you know, Heights has a physical supply chain. It's an expensive business to run. Um, there are just like huge costs that you'd like go into like investing in the business before you can actually grow it. Most startups, to be honest, that like raise in the early days, don't really need the money. The money is a function of going faster. But if you're in CPG or you have physical products, you need the money or you can't really grow. You just literally can't make orders for new customers. So you just can't grow. We were stuck in that sort of paradox. So I was saying to Joel, I'll focus entirely on this. You focus on running the business, so to speak. So we hired a couple of people, hired a product manager and a social media manager basically just got to work on on building the brand and making sure that the website was essentially functioning and we were doing customer service in the meantime like ourselves what's the money position then if you need to raise by june do you remember what that was because you've just also hired two people so you've added to your burn what was the money and how transparent are you with new joiners about that because i always think it's quite interesting because you don't want to screw someone over you want to attract talent but you yeah. need to also be upfront with them that, you know, they might not have a job in three months. So how did you handle all of that? Yeah, I think we had something like 500k in the bank. We didn't have no money. We had a decent amount of money. But the decent amount of money in a business like ours depletes quickly. And basically, there are big cash investment moments in a business like ours. And so you need that balance to not go too low. Otherwise, your stock suppliers won't serve you. It's very much like a function with, with CPG, so consumer product goods. It's very much a function of making sure that you look like you are a legitimate enough business to continue operating. Otherwise, people literally just won't, your suppliers won't work with you. How transparent are we? I mean, we build in public, so like really transparent, really transparent with our first starters, but really clear on our mission, really clear on our vision, like really explaining what we're trying to do and how we're trying to build it, which obviously is the startup way. And we found people who are like mega, mega, mega passionate about what we do. Um, and it's worth saying that we had, in the year before, we had focused really heavily on company values. So something we did wrong in our last company was uh, not care about company values and not really figure out culture. And so something that we spent a lot of time on when it was just Joel and I in the year before building in the background was creating like a code of conduct, a code of conduct, uh, brand guidelines and a set of company values and had written all of our interview questions, interview processes, how they aligned with our company values and even done all of our onboarding documentation Um all in preparation of hiring anyone, which was just the exact opposite of what we'd ever done previously. And it made an enormous difference to people joining the company and really immediately from day one feeling like they're part of the culture, but especially even more so at a point where you're working remote, people don't really necessarily know how to work remote, like we were not intending to work remotely, right? So everyone's kind of just figuring it out as you go along. These are people who you're meant to be meeting and working with and collaborating on a daily basis. That was the job description. That was what the expectation was. And that's now not what's happening. And on top of that, one of the founders is basically spending 95% of their time fundraising. So not really being involved in the meetings, not really being involved in like the core stuff, because any time there was an opportunity to get a meeting in any time and i literally mean any time like i was working like 7 a.m till midnight you know i was doing calls with la i was doing calls with asia i did not care like we were desperate we had three months to raise money i would work on any time zone to have any conversation and the only thing that i would stop that for ultimately was if it clashed with another investor call 
I took a really strategic approach to the investment side as well. We basically decided we wanted to raise crowdfunding at the end of the year. And what we wanted to do was raise enough money in like part one, tranche one, so to speak. I wanted to raise enough money by June that we had that money in the bank and were able to like use it and touch it if we wanted to. However, that it was like very much sort of an escrow as part of a broader round. So we were raising one and a half million. I said, as long as we get 500, 600K in the bank, does everyone else agree that we can get that in the bank and start spending it while spending the rest? Because sometimes where startups fail is having to get the whole amount in by a certain deadline. And if you don't, you don't get any of it, which I do understand, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And that wasn't going to be an applicable opportunity for us. I went to town on, I found there were some lists during COVID that people made, like, you know, here's a list of all the active angel investors in Europe and stuff like that. And I literally contacted everyone on the list. There must have been a thousand people. And I got in touch with every single one that said that they were interested in consumer startups. When I say I did the hustle, I've never hustled so hard as trying to raise money in COVID, ever. So here you are, you know, it's sort of March-ish time i imagine 2020 there's two goals the money is like the big goal by end of june you need some money in the bank it's a high burn business but there's also going to be this big round at the end of the year so you now need to position the company so that you can effectively do that you say that you've never hustled so far but i'd love to know and i think our listeners would as well what do you think that the key lessons were from that period when you were fundraising? You obviously did a lot of things. What were the things that really worked? I mean, I think the companies that survived and thrived in COVID versus the ones that died, often, like just outworking everyone. It sounds really bad, but like fundamentally, the, the market was in chaos. But if you worked hard enough, especially in the early days, it all got so much easier so fast. You know, by the summer, people were sort of throwing money at startups and the narrative all changed so much. But in the first three months was sort of like the valley of death. If you were at risk and vulnerable in that time, only way through that path was a numbers game. I know how to play a numbers game, right? You reach out to a thousand people, you might hear a hundred responses, you might book 20 phone calls. Done. On to the next thousand. I, like my days were so methodically single-minded. And having such a clear purpose, at this point, spent, you know, the best part of 18 months, two years, just preparing to build the company of my dreams. I wasn't about to let COVID take it away. Having a really clear delineation between Joel and myself, making it super clear, like, Joel, this investor is going to want five interviews, you join interview number five. I wasn't going to bore him with, like, interviews one and four. And every single time someone told me that they were going to invest, I assumed that they weren't, because people are just so flaky. We never, ever banked on any of the money coming in. We didn't have metrics to go to venture capital funds. One thing that we did really unusually was we had quite a high valuation. We were raising £2 million in total at uh, £8 million pre. So we were doing like 500 in the first tranche and then one and a half afterwards. £8 million pre, £10 million post. In a market where no one wants to invest and you've got £30,000 of sales, absolutely astonishingly ridiculous. However... Our narrative was, we've got X many hundred thousands of pounds worth of stock. We've got, you know, uh, an absolute best in class product that actually costs this much on R&D. You know, there's a lot, a lot of reasons why we believed that we were worth that. And also because fundamentally, we weren't willing to dilute ourselves more than that. We 
for tooth and nail with every single investor. Any investor that suggested that they get preference shares, any investor that suggested that they wanted more than we felt comfortable for one person to be giving away, absolutely anything that involved anything other than the terms we set, we walked away from, which was insane if you think about it. Like we were running out of money. I'd say 90% of investors were just telling us the valuation's too high, the market's changed, we're not willing to go that high, etc. And multiple times, Joel and I having the conversation of, should we switch this up? Like, we keep getting this feedback, the valuation's too high. And actually, we're just like, no, let's keep going. Like, we will find the people that believe in this product who actually believe in what we're doing enough that the valuation isn't really a consideration. What's a consideration is the opportunity. We stood by that. And we made it all the way through, right? We raised the entire £2 million. We ended up doing our crowdfunding. We ended up giving away not a single piece of legal rights that we were not comfortable or willing to give up. We made it just really clear that we want to run this business. And based on previous experience of having very challenging board members and other mem and other voices at the table, we made it super clear the things that we are and aren't willing to give up. And those things were equity and control. When did you um, close that round? So the first tranche closed in June 2020, just in time. And I remember this was the period as well of Zoom backgrounds going crazy. They had all the virtual video Zoom backgrounds. I turned up to one of our team meetings with this image I'd done of, of Joel and myself, cigars in our mouths and money floating down from the sky. It was kind of like a Breaking Bad thing, but like just like dollar bills like animated all over us, et cetera, et cetera, as the background. Um, that was like my background to like team announcement. I think we were six people at that time saying, we've got the money, time to move forward, yada, yada, like all exciting. Everyone's really happy. Anyway, close the meeting. An hour later, I've got another investor meeting to like have a conversation with them about like where to wire the money. And I totally forgot that like we'd have that auto background on. And I started this investor call with this like they've just met me and just agreed to invest, and I'm suddenly there with this like background of me and Joel with cigars in our mouths and money falling all over our heads. It was absolutely incredible. Fortunately, they took it really well, but I was mortified. Brilliant. So um, you've now, you've got the money, but you've already started hiring people. It's really tricky, the hiring one, because the right way to do it is to hire based on values, um, which we did really, really well. We outperformed massively for the first couple of years, and it's because we did hire really great people. Like, we were very good at it, I would say. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's vanta.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. 
Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So you, you, you're starting to build, certainly recruit the team. You've got this goal end of the year that you want to do a fundraise. What do you need to achieve in that year to be in a good position to do a crowd round? Doing a crowdfunding round is an extremely laborious process. There's a lot of time that goes into it. It's unbelievably detail-oriented. And because they're FCA regulated as well, it is just a total minefield at the level of detail at which you need to provide evidence for everything that you say all the time. At the end of the day, the most important thing when you're doing a crowdfund is making sure that you have at least 50% of the money lined up, ready to go. So that was one of the really important things, like strategically, because I knew that we wanted to do crowdfunding that year. I made sure that the way that we handled the money So how the money went in was into an escrow account, was in line essentially with crowdfunding rules of how to use and touch money that is like earmarked for a round. So if you're raising a million, you need at least half a million committed. Well, I wanted to make sure that we had as much committed as humanly possible. So we did a very sort of cheeky framing of it all where we said we're raising one million pound but we had 750,000 pounds of it already committed so a majority of it and then we just overfunded massively uh, we were raising officially one million pound was a number that we said and then the idea is you go into overfunding we raised obviously the half a million that I mentioned earlier we'd raise that by June and from the point of June onwards knowing that we're going to do this crowdfunding we launched it in I think October maybe end of October then it closed in December one of the things you need for crowdfunding is time like if you want to do it well you have a bit of time to plan it all to make sure that it is like smooth but what you need is momentum like the number one most important thing is momentum we got very lucky because we had been building a customer list for sure um i think we were you know getting close to a thousand customers by the time it was summer by the time maybe it was like September, I think we had around a thousand customers, but it'd been a hard slog, right? And we'd done so many things through COVID to sort of activate it. We'd done all these YouTube lives, which, you know, had been really well attended as, you know, YouTube live with Stephen Fry one week. We did one with Jay Shetty the next week. We found, yeah, had like 7,000 people watching live quite often. Really quite amazing. Like because it was the pandemic and no one had anything better to do than learn, it was just the perfect place for us and we had the perfect kind of content. It was really great brand awareness. We had got to about a thousand customers, very bootstrapped. I mean, all this stuff is obviously content, so it's just like my time and free. We didn't really have an advertising budget. We weren't doing any paid. And at that point, I was invited to speak on Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett. Obviously, I said yes. It was a weird one because it was like, 
there was a pandemic was still happening and he was very much like we're doing it at mine in the house like all this stuff and i was like really and he was like yeah i don't want to do anything that's not like that and i was like all right if you've been tested and all that stuff so anyway and it was a great interview really enjoyed it he's obviously a master of what he does it went live a few weeks later it was just in time for our crowdfunding campaign it was perfect we i'd say got another 500 customers or so from that in the next couple of weeks which is pretty good like that's quite a big conversion rate in general but if you think about it it's also like exactly what you need to show going into a crowdfunding like you know officially what they can see is you've spent no extra money whatsoever and you've just grown 50 percent. that's kind of how it was like going into crowdfunding like i was going and accepting interview requests uh, in a lot of different places like i'd build up a bit of a, a content story in the year that had been so far by doing these youtube lives and getting in contact with cool people so i was having a you know a moment where i was focusing on spreading the message far and wide as much as I could on various different podcasts and that strategy was really working for us and so going into the crowdfunding campaign with just like a really strong narrative pretty much 30% month on month growth and also like Dan you've written uh, yeah. I think it's a LinkedIn post which is all about how to do crowdfunding well and, and Cedars I seem to remember saying lots of people have written these guides but you're the first person to tell the truth yeah, exactly. And the reason for that, Will, is because I uh, the title is How to Raise a Million Pounds in 10 Minutes, because we did, and it was a ground, it was a uh, record-breaking crowdfund. And then the first line in it is something along the lines of, well, we didn't. This is what actually happened. And it's like, well, this is how much we raised in advance. This is how much was prepped. Like, don't believe all the hype you ever see on crowdfunding platforms. This is actually what you do behind the scenes. You wanted to crowdfund at the end of the year. Presumably you had some kind of targets, like we want to be at 2,000 yes. customers or whatever. And then you needed to mold the team around that. So I'd love to know what your goal, if you can remember what your goals were. And then how did you get the team operating? Because this is something founders will have. You know, you've got to create all the rituals and you've got to manage people into sort of performing or create the right environment. What happened there? Because it's one of the mm. toughest things in business, right? Yeah, so... In terms of like the the processes, the strategic management and stuff like that, that's very much my business partner Joel's, not necessarily zone of genius, but certainly like, because he's got other zones of genius, but it's definitely an area where he's really strong. He, I would say, is very curious and not dogmatic about what is the best way to work and what are the ways that should work for us. And so I say that because at Heights, we've had so many different styles of things that we've tried and then not tried and then tried again. Because we're consistently, like all startups should be, on a mission to search for what actually works to deliver the best results. Now, at the time, I remember that we had something called Explore OKRs. So OKRs are objectives and key results. And for anyone that doesn't know about them, they're used in lots of the biggest companies in the world. And there's a great book called Measure What Matters by a guy called John Doerr. Uh, and you should read more about them there. But what they essentially are is, you know, you have your broad objectives and then key results are very specific and actionable and like measurable. So you can actually say whether or not you've accomplished them. We've got the team aligned with those. But what Explore OKRs are is sort of the um, you accept that as a startup, you're in exploration of uh, product market fit. So being too dogmatic about what a key result is, is actually kind of silly because you, don't, you really don't know anything. We became quite good at making sure that we're like, let's not spend any time doing anything that we haven't pre-agreed to do as a strategy, but not so dogmatic that we won't change. So if we suddenly find ourselves in a situation 
um, as you do in startups, where you ask people what they did this week and they tell you and then you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like anything related to the OKRs that we just talked about. What is going on? You're like, well, this stuff's far more important. Then you've got two questions to ask. One is, have I just hired an idiot that literally doesn't understand how to follow their own instructions that they set out? Two, are our OKRs wrong and they need updating because like, why would we dogmatically keep something that clearly isn't where the opportunity is right now? There's the being in constant search of processes and like you know, even team meetings and stuff, right? Like what works for us as a team? Like how do we collaborate to actually get results? The stuff's hard. Like it's really genuinely hard. Like it's so easy to, it's one of the most underestimated things, but it's very easy to come up with ideas to all collaborate passionately in a meeting and think that, you know, we've had a breakthrough, but actually like the execution and collaboration of who does what and tying that together and actually turning it into a meaningful output that looks good. Bloody hard work. So that is the thing that we spent a lot of time on. And I say we, but I really mean Joel. Um, But spent a lot of time like figuring out like the different ways that different things we can try, different ways that we can try them, constantly getting feedback from the team about what was or wasn't working. So do you remember any specific, it'd be great to give some examples to our team about like the different kinds of rituals or whatever you, uh, and and some maybe that worked in particular as well that you think are are worth sharing? Um, Well, we used to have a thing called Friday Night Heights because we think we're really funny. Um, (laughs) And Friday Night Lights is one of my favorite films and it's a great TV show. So that was Friday Night Heights. And then ironically, in terms of like rituals, we then decided that, Friday night was actually a really bad time to do like the all hands company meeting because then you've got the weekend and and it took us like six months essentially to realize that this wasn't the optimal time. So then we were trying to look for another time that it worked and the only time that we could find it was Thursday and now forever since it's been called Thursday Night Heights except um, now Thursday Night Heights because we're now an international team like straddling loads of different time zones. Thursday Night Heights now happens on Thursday lunchtime. So... It's now neither night nor Friday. That is a good example of uh, don't get too dogmatic over your, uh, your, your naming of these things. One that's really been great that we've actually had since the very start that we've never stopped is uh, we had this thing called Central Perk. Essentially, we just like back in the day on Zoom, I just had a Central Perk background for everyone. And it was a uh, 3pm on a Wednesday. It was just like a come join the Central Perk cafe and just have a chat non-work related and just chat to anyone that like wants to turn up. And that's still something that we do every single Wednesday. I mean, we're still fully remote, right? So we'll play games or we'll just have a casual chat or we'll use it as like a learning opportunity. But it's actually really great to see like there are a couple of these things that have actually stood the test of time and seen the light of day and continue to. There's a company that I invested in previously called Flown. They came up in the pandemic as well. Like their idea is genius. It's essentially that they have a really good insight. They're trying to be essentially the peloton of work. People find more accountability to do their work when they are, especially if they're working remotely, when they have other people around them to hold them accountable. So the idea with Flown, which is a bit odd, but it's actually amazing and always works and has become a massive part of the Heights culture. You turn up, you speak to other people that are on their Zoom call, essentially. They have a facilitator who might do interludes in the middle and ask you to do some yoga stretches or like uh, share a fun fact with someone else. But ultimately, you go off into like a breakout room with three or four other people and say what you're going to work on in the next 90 minutes and what you're hoping to achieve and why you're hoping to achieve it. So you have sort of a five minute powwow with a bunch of strangers. Go back into the main room. Everyone has their commitments there. 
it's facilitated. Everyone is literally just working on silent with a Zoom, massive Zoom group in the background. It's a bit weird and culty, but it's excellent. And then you work for your 90 minutes. And when the 90 minutes is up, they tell you and you go back into your rooms and share with other people what you've done and what you've accomplished. We trialled it about a year ago and we've done it ever since. So we do two flones a week as a team. We actually find it to be a really great way as well to connect with each other. So we we do flowns through the platform and now we do like our own internal ones as well. And when we do our own internal ones, we tend to ask ourselves questions that are related to our values. So how have you shown up this week and built trust with someone, for example, will be the question and everyone will answer it together. Anyway, so these are like some rituals that I feel like have been really powerful in building a remote company and making sure that meetings are a bit of a minimum, but like interactions are at an all time high. Any other particular tips for founders? Because, you know, so much of work now is hybrid or even f- fully remote mm. f- for founders. I love that flown example. Are there any other tools or tactics that you think are particularly good? I often find, you know, the remote stuff can end up feeling quite sort of gimmicky or it can like fall down by the wayside. And obviously you've got to try new things to keep it fresh. So is there anything in particular that doesn't fall foul of those things? I think it's really important for teams to try things together and see what works. Like we've tried all the sort of like water cooler chat apps and, you know, all the different like walking apps and but at the end of the day, like our experience has just been that most people don't want more apps and more things. They kind of want like less things and to just like really hone in and how to make those experiences better. One of the challenges we had was in the year that we launched, we weren't supposed to be a remote company. And so we weren't interested or ready to become a remote company. We had spent most of our time thinking about how to build a culture in an office. We had an office in Soho. We only got out of that contract in September. And so for like the whole year, basically, you know, we were, you know, locked into a contract and thinking that we're going back into an office, even though we never did. One of the problems that happened there is we had like a cultural analysis paralysis of like, okay, we're hybrid because we say we're hybrid, um, but we never really identified how to do hybrid well. One of the things we do do as a, as a company is company retreats. We do two company retreats a year, which I'm responsible for planning and executing. And that's been like a really great way. And even when we were doing hybrid, that's what we decided was like going to be a really good way to bring the company together. Yeah, one of the really common misconceptions that people have about building remote versus building IRL is you'll save money. Uh, I think that can be true, but I think if you're building a great culture, you're probably doing it wrong if that's your thinking, because all the money that we spend or would spend, sorry, on having an office, we generally put into retreats and into making sure that the remote setup for employees is super comfortable and happy. We use a company called Juno. We give every employee at Heights £100 a month on wellness that they can use. We have learning and development budgets. We have uh, you know, just so many wellness perks that we really focus on because we want people to turn up, be happy and have all this like exceptional freedom and opportunity to do what they want. That's the benefit of being a remote company anywhere in the world, in my opinion. But these are things you might be getting in an office and we can't offer them to you in an office. And so when I look at our budget spend per person, it's no less than having an office for sure. Um, it's just spent in a really different conscious way. And I think it's really important to acknowledge and accept that you are going to lose certain things by having a remote culture for sure. And therefore, it's really important to gain that sense of connection by bringing people together in real life, if you can, once or twice a year. That's a massively important thing. 
me and producer Ruth who are listening to this. We've got to we've got to figure out why we don't have these sweet perks, Ruth. Yeah, so we need to raise some money. Will sounds great being at heights, but yeah, look, okay, so I, I get that with the with the people. What is it you're trying to do with the company? What state are you trying to have it in by the time that the fundraise comes along? Because I imagine at this point you're trying to figure out. Yeah. product market fit but is, is that the case and how are you actually doing that because that is something that all founders basically will, will come up against at some point yeah we were focused on the process of experimentation so doing growth experiments in a growth backlog so having ideas that we would take through to execution and be able to like properly analyze every single growth experiment and see which ones bear fruit, which ones didn't. We're talking partnerships, we're talking the YouTube, we're talking Clubhouse, like all of these things we did, they were things in the growth backlog that we either continued doing because they were delivering customers to us or extra followers, which would eventually drive customers. But we were really experiment hypothesis driven. I think we've lost a little bit of that, like potentially at heights, not in a terrible way, but you know, it's so early at that stage, like the the need to understand what you're doing is so high. What you know is a drop and what you don't know is an ocean. It's really important to try and get yourself into a process where you're like, you are trying loads of different approaches as fast as humanly possible in as lean a way as possible to really learn if any of these are worth exploring. Like fundamentally, you don't know how to communicate your product. You don't know who your product is for. You don't know why people stick around and like it. It's just a dogfight. You have to have a process. We never said to the, in the crowdfund, we never said we're going to have X amount of customers by the time that we do this. We just said we are a company that understands that we're in search of product market fit, in search of customers, really early stage, but we're finding some traction with our message. And it was genuinely as honest as that. That message might not have resonated quite so much if our results had been crap in the background, but as we're sharing this message, the results were great. We were, like I said, growing 30% month on month going into this crowdfund. We had this newsletter list that was also really growing as well, so we were able to demonstrate how this was all working, and then also had the smart idea of turning the YouTube lives that we'd already created over the summer, we turned all of them into a podcast. People are looking at this team of like six people thinking, my God, like how are they doing so much stuff? You know, we were very much like our job is to create interest and intrigue around our general topic and provide a really powerful solution on subscription that people can buy into. So what have you learned about finding product market fit? It's obviously something you've done a lot. You speak with a lot of founders. It's a real discipline and a skill, I think, to be able to to do that well. What sort of practical advice would you have for founders? I think product market fit is broken down into many different things. And in reality, at Heights, I'm not sure that we have. I don't think the company has product market fit. I believe that we have two products now. One of them seems to actually have product market fit and the other one doesn't, ironically, the first one that we're talking about in this whole uh, conversation here, the smart supplement, doesn't have product market fit. It's a very hard product to communicate to people. And so when you have product market fit, ultimately the floodgates kind of open, the conversion rates on your product pages are really high. People are just like intrigued and interested and follow through and stick around. For our smart supplement, it's a much, much, much harder job to get people through the door. Now, once they're through the door, they stick around. So we're, we're stuck with a product where the product is so good that people don't believe in it. 
and once they believe in it they stick around for life so we have an interesting product problem that we're looking to tackle even this year right we think that potentially the naming and the categorizing of the product is potentially one of the things that's holding us back in our other product the probiotic people are searching for solutions um, for gut health and the probiotic is a trusted recommended option there that is highly credible that now has loads of science backing and credible reviews and all of these things that product definitely seems to demonstrate much more product market fit on the basis of it is meeting a need of a customer yeah i mean it's one of those things when you got it when you got it you know you got it what is your advice for for trying to find product market fit how do you organize teams to go and, and hunt it down uh, one thing i would say that we made the mistake on is we started to grow really quickly which then made us feel like we had product market fit, which is actually not entirely true. What we had was some really good advertising that was really resonating with a certain class of audience. And we misunderstood that for product market fit and hired accordingly. And once we'd hired all those people, we were unable to uh, replicate or scale our, our spend to acquire those customers because we didn't have product market fit after all. What I would say is, not over hiring until you have product market fit is so important and the reason for that is because having a high monthly burn causes pressure on the business to make decisions at a speed that sometimes are detrimental and counterintuitive to the work that needs to be done because the work that always needs to be done is that detective work on who are our customers why do they like our product and what do we need to do more of to find more of them really important lesson to learn and one that I learned the hard way recently. What else, another big thing did you learn in that year? What would you have done differently? One of the lessons I'm still learning and my business partner is very good at holding me to account on this, I think probably just intuitively understands what I'm like, is it is very easy to get caught up doing busy work, thinking that it's important work, like brand building, audience building, etc. I was doing lots of clubhouse during that first year. And it was building a really big audience on Clubhouse. We got to 50,000 followers on Clubhouse, all completely free. And I was speaking to, on Clubhouse, you know, it was a pandemic, there wasn't much else to do. I was speaking to people about heights and brain care every single day from all over the world, talking about thousands of people, having a really impressive impact in that ecosystem and you know one of the top featured clubs or a top 10 health and wellness club in the whole world on clubhouse you know and it was having its moment i don't regret doing it because actually in startups you really should go with where the puck is going you know you'd be mad not to try and just because something doesn't pan out you should never ever criticize someone for actually trying to follow like the common sense of, of seeing a new opportunity but you know maybe i did clubhouse for like a month or two too long Actually, a good way of trying to improve in this area is having a business partner and an open relationship where you're like capable of speaking directly to each other and asking those questions without it becoming offensive. Like having someone say to you, why are you doing what you're doing? At least does make you stop and think that you, once you have to explain it to your business partner and you start saying the words, you can just be a bit like, oh, wait a minute. Like it's not actually doing much impact, is it? Why am I doing this? To sum up or rather to close off, so you you have this fundraise December 2020. So you're coming into 2021 with burgeoning bank account, most of the money in Silicon Valley Bank, which me from the future will tell you is a bad idea. But at that time, you're looking flush. You're feeling good then, presumably, about heights at the start of 2021. Can you tell us how you're feeling at this point and what you want to achieve next year? Because then this is probably where we're going to pick up next time and see whether you actually achieved what you wanted to yeah so feel very proud 
of the team and very proud to have weathered the storm of 2020 and to have closed the fundraise, to have had our crowdfund done and all that stuff felt absolutely fantastic. However, we immediately ran into a problem over Christmas where we ran out of stock and this was our first experience of what it's like to actually also run a D2C supply chain business where suddenly you pile on a whole bunch of customers faster than you were necessarily predicting or anticipating or could afford to do. We ran out of stock until, if I remember rightly, maybe like mid-Feb, the start of Feb. So we had this experience to start off the new year, which is maybe where we can uh, start next time, but just as the tidbit. We just brought on a few hundred crowd investors into this exciting new vision of a company and told everyone how proud they should be to be investing in such an awesome company and how great we are and all of the other bits and pieces and a first interaction that they ever experience as investors in our company is we run out of stock and miss the entire January wellness phase where we're literally just unable to mop up the presuming loads of demand that would have been there for a company our size in January. And it was just utterly deflating. And it was one of the times where, you know, you, we noticed like real tension in the company that was worth addressing like culturally, which is growth has its targets. But then if ops is the reason that growth can't hit its targets, like that causes real cultural tension because you've done everything right and someone else has done stuff wrong and so it's like finger pointing and doesn't create a good environment for that but also just from a brand reputation and how I felt as a founder having taken new strangers money to have that as their first experience in the business really disappointed and so frustrated so kind of ending the year on a high but also actually a low classic startup life isn't it the highs the lows thank you very much Dan Murray Serta thanks for having me mate this is obviously Dan's recollection of events and are his own opinions. One founder's views of their company's journey can differ to another's. These are Dan's personal opinions and not the opinions of the company. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Will Stolomon. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. See you next time.